Today we'll be reading out of Jeremiah chapter 10. I'd love for you to follow along with our house Bibles. They're either in the pew in front of you or sitting on the table in front of you. And uh, we will be on page 676, page 676, that is Jeremiah chapter 10 today. One of the most iconic moments in cinema is the opening scene of Indiana Jones, in which Indiana Jones is trying to steal this little golden idol statue. And uh, he knows it's sitting on a, uh, a trip plate. And so he's got his bag of sand, and he's estimated about the weight of it so he can try to swap it out seamlessly and not fall to any of the traps that are around in the temple that he's in. And quickly, he takes off the pedestal the little golden idol and replaces it with a bag of sand, seemingly quickly enough, but it doesn't work. And then there's a giant stone rolling after him, right? I love it. It's perfect. I might suggest to you that you and I have something similar in our lives, an altar at the center of our hearts, at the center of our lives, and there's always something on it. It can't be empty. Whether a golden idol statue, wealth, success, fame, some god of our choosing, or even ourselves, there's an altar at the center of our lives, and there's always, always something on it. That you don't know what is on it doesn't mean that something isn't sitting right there for you. Jeremiah brings this to our attention today in chapter 10. When he calls out all of the nations and he says there's, there's the ways and the things that all the other nations put at the center of their lives and it's not to be the way God's people are to live their lives. And God's people are not to put in the center of their lives those same things. Jeremiah says that the ways of the world, the ways of the nations are always crying out and calling out and reaching out to Israel, but they are to serve the Lord alone. This chapter also speaks about the wisdom of serving God versus the foolishness, in fact, the very foolishness of serving anything else. And it dawns on me that this is the perfect message for our graduates who are going away who are going to be making decisions about what will be in the center of their lives, what will sit on those altars in their hearts, because we're constantly making a decision what we will choose to do as we go through the world and the nations and see all the opportunities of what we can worship and how we can worship. As we go and hear the Word of the Lord together today, let's say a prayer. Father God, I thank You for speaking to us clearly. I pray now that You'd give us the wisdom to hear it and to believe it. Teach us so that we can center our lives on You properly. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, that the, word, that the Lord has spoken to you, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says, Do not learn the way of the nations, or be terrified by signs in the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. 
For the customs of the peoples are worthless. Someone cut down a tree from the forest. It is worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. He fastens it with a hammer and nails so it won't totter. But like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, neither can they do any good either. This is the word of the Lord. He says, first, don't learn the ways of the nation. It describes the ways that every nation works, all people. And it goes like this, he says, they find themselves a good tree, and then they cut it down, and they find themselves a nice craftsman, and he, he shapes up a little statue for them and builds it and puts it all together and assembles it so that they can worship this little statue. He gives this really interesting uh, metaphor for them. He says, they're like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. The idea, or melon patch, the idea that you think of is the idol that they worship, their god, their statue is like a scarecrow, not real. It looks real. It looks like a real person. You, somebody might be fooled into thinking that that's real, but it's not real. And all of these people of the nations, they just look like watermelons or cucumbers tilted in, facing towards it, but themselves hollow things. This idea of a, a melon there or being melon-headed uh, is present. He says they're just all tilted in like a bunch of melons in a field in front of a scarecrow. It's a beautiful picture, uh, if a terrifying picture. He says they're statues. They're idols. None of it's real. There's nothing to be afraid of. They can't do anything against you. They're not going to bring judgment against you. Likewise, they can do no good for you because it's all just fake. God says to them, do not learn the ways of the nations and do not be like the other nations. The Israelite, when God brought them out of Egypt, He called them to be different from all of the other nations around them in every way. I mean, according to the law of Moses, they were to dress differently. They, they weren't even supposed to look like or dress like any of the neighbors around them. Their diets were not the same. You can't get together and eat with somebody without realizing we are not doing the same thing here. We're not eating the same thing. We're not dressed the same way. The way we worship is not the same, and all of it is because God is demonstrating, not just to Israel, but to all of the nations, that He is not like the other gods that the other nations came up with. For all the other nations, they needed something to worship. Turns out us humans are made for it. They all had that altar in their heart at the center of their lives and created some purpose or meaning for their life to be about and worshipped whatever thing it is they decided would fit their own lives. But not this one nation, not Israel. You see, at the center of that nation was a real God who brought them out of slavery and gave them a nation and set them aside so that they should look differently from all their neighbors. And yet again, Israel and Israel was tempted to go and worship these other gods. Again and again, Israel turned from the one true God and did the exact opposite of what this passage calls. God says, don't learn the ways of the nations. But Israel went and did exactly what their neighbors were doing. The peer pressure was too high. The desire to fit in was too high. You think these things are for teenagers sometimes. 
It's only if you don't have enough self-awareness to look at your own life and realize that pressure to fit in in a society and look normal and be normal in a neighborhood at a meal and at a gathering are too high for all of us. And Israel, again and again, goes about learning the ways of the other nations and acting like them. This is a real possibility for all of us Christians as well. You know, to commit to Christ, to become a Christian, is a person believing that what God says about himself is true, and then offering their lives to him and saying, Jesus, you will be the center of my life. You will be the authority in my life. You're going to be the one that I obey. In a short word, we say Jesus is Lord in our lives. But we live in the world, and the world's all around us. And there's a constant call from every song, from every TV show, from every movie we watch, every artifact of culture calls us and makes us disciples in the way of the world. The more that we look at it, the more that we see so much of what we entertain ourselves with is a call to be like everyone else, to be like the world, to change our lives and accept what the world accepts and not what God has called us to. But in the words of the famous Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. You know this one. It says everyone. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you got to serve somebody. Some 20 years ago, the author David Foster Wallace gave a graduation speech at Kenyon College in California, and he picked up these themes in a fascinating way. As he was talking to those college graduates, he starts off with a joke. He says, so you, do you know the story of uh, two fish, there are these two young fish swimming together out in the ocean, and they swim past an older fish who says, man, the water sure is nice today. Swimming on, one of the young fish looks at the other one and says, what's water? you got to imagine, what even, what even is it? And yet, we go through the culture and through the world like fish in water. We breathe it in and out. It's all around us. The call to be like the rest of the world is all around us at all times. Uh, Wallace says this in his speech. I'll read to you, and you'll understand some of these things. And as he's not a believer or was not a believer like we are, you'll, you'll understand uh, the truth of some of this and some of the other things that are close but just not quite right. Wallace says, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, an and that's an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, because pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life from, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. 
But the trick is keeping that truth up front in our daily consciousness. If you worship power, you'll always feel weak and afraid. You'll never, uh, you will need more and more power over others to keep fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, if you worship being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're so unconscious. This is our default settings. This kind of worship just gradually slips in day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure things and how you derive value. Is it true? You know, to live in the world is sometimes to be like a fish saying, what's water? We just live in the world. We're always being enticed by the world to be like the world and to be like the other nations and to be like everyone else when God has called us to be different. What God has called and says is, do not learn the ways of the nations. They make idols for themselves, and they do it again and again. They're always putting something at the center of their life that is not the one true God. So let's say perhaps, as I've said, let's say there is some small little altar at the center of your life, and you're always worshiping something. You always have to put something right there in the center of your life that is the focus of your life, is it security? Is it personal choice? Is it your success? Is it your children's success? This is terrifying but true. We can put children there and turn them and their own success as a way of perpetuating ourselves and our own success into the future as idols in our hearts. As we've said, if it's money, it'll never be enough, and you'll end up hating yourself for what you do in order to get it. The things that you have to do in order to worship money are evil indeed. If it is your own reputation that you worship as an idol in your life, well, then you will have to make deals with devils to hide your own flaws. Because nobody is perfect and everyone does wrong. So if your reputation is the idol in your life, then you'll have to do all sorts of things and make all kinds of deals to try and cover up what you've done, even if it means overlooking what other people have done. This is how giant scandals take place. If the idol at the center of your life is comfort and security, then you will be broken completely and wholly when security and comfort inevitably fail you, as it inevitably fails all of us. Life and difficulties, tragedies happen to everyone at some point. The person who worships security and worships comfort will simply be devastated when inevitable loss comes, and it always comes. If you worship your own intelligence, you're just going to end up being fooled and ashamed. If you worship strength, then you'll be crushed and devastated when your body starts to betray you. 
If you worship being savvy or cool or witty or well-spoken, well, then you will be led astray by the savvier and the cooler and the wittier and the more well-spoken than you. After all, what's more beautiful than a wolf? And yet, this is the way we are lured away and attacked by wolves. Look so attractive from the outside. That person, they, they had so much charisma. And yet, we are chewed up and spit out. If you worship acceptance, well, then you'll have to give yourself away and always too much of yourself. If you worship acceptance and being able to fit in, then there will be nothing of yourself that you will not have to give up in order to be accepted. Do you not know which idol you prize in the center of your life today? I have a few diagnostic questions for you. Here's a few things to help decide what is it in your life that like a fish in water you've put at the center of your life and will compromise anything in order to get Here's a few questions that might help you diagnose yourself and open your eyes to what's going on in your own heart. Number one, what do you worry the most about? Number two, if you failed or lost something, what would it cause you to feel like? Ask yourself this, what do I run to in order to comfort myself when things start going bad in life? What do you run to in order to find comfort and relief when life starts getting bad? Ask yourself, what makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I the proudest of? What do I want to be known for? What do you want to be known for today? What do I often lead with in conversation? And early on, what do I want other people to know about me? These things that can tempt you to be the center of your life and focus, whether they're characteristics of yourself or somebody else, I tell you, Bob Dylan was right. You've got to serve somebody but the default setting for all of our hearts and all of our lives is to be just like the rest of the world. We're born into it. We don't have to be taught to be like the rest of the world. And there's always some idol in our heart that we worship, and all of them will let us down. Prophet Jeremiah continues in verse 6, and he says this, Contrary to those who learn the ways of the nations, Jeremiah says, Lord... There is none like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. Who should not fear you, King of the nations? It's what you deserve. For among all the wise people of the nations and among all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are stupid and foolish, instructed by worthless idols made of wood. But the Lord God, verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, an eternal King. The earth quakes at His wrath. The nations cannot endure His rage. You are to say to them, the gods that do not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Jeremiah turns and says, here's all wisdom. 
It says, you know, the, the themes that you see in the book of Proverbs of wisdom and foolishness are all throughout Jeremiah as well. He says, they, they worship rocks, they worship trees, it's foolishness. If there is anyone wise in any of the nations, they need to worship the Lord God because, Lord, there is none like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. And this is, this is interesting. As Jeremiah says to the God of Israel, what does he call him in verse 7? Who should not fear you, king of the nations? See, Jeremiah knows that God's plan was never just about Israel, but through Israel to call people from all nations to himself. So Jeremiah knows here from this time to call him king of the nations. This is what he calls God, that if there's anyone and any nation, wisdom is this, learning how to say, Lord, there is none like you. Dear graduates and everybody else in the congregation, do not learn the ways of the nations. Don't go in the ways of the world and follow the gods of this world but rather learn in wisdom to say, Lord, there is none like You. This is what wisdom is. is to say, Lord, there is none like You. In the words of Solomon, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In fact, you know, sometimes we can talk about how we feel like true wisdom is so far away. Perhaps it's true, at least in the world, as Jeremiah describes it, foolishness is everywhere. And good, honest wisdom is nowhere to be found. But sometimes we can act ourselves as if figuring out what's right to do and doing the wise thing is really hard to figure out, but that's not how Scripture portrays it. In the book of Proverbs, Scripture portrays wisdom as standing on the street corner and crying out, anybody, everybody, whoever wants it, come and get wisdom. Come and get intelligence. If you're looking into the next phase of your life and thinking, where will I learn how to live? Where will I learn what is good and right and true? I tell you today, wisdom is crying out to you. Come and get wisdom. That the Scriptures speak truly. The Word of God Himself speaks to you and says, come here. God wants you to know Him, and He wants you to be wise. So you'll find all the wisdom that you need beginning here. The declaration, Lord... There's none like you. In fact, when Christ comes, Christ, the very Word of God Himself, speaking the Word of God, the Sermon on the Mount can be read, can be interpreted as essentially a call against all false religions. When Christ goes up on the mountainside and sits down and preaches the Sermon on the Mount, what He is doing is correcting every other view of who God is. He corrects and He confronts all kinds of idolatry. He especially confronts the idolatry of the Pharisees at the time, who've created their own sets of laws, who've created their own way of living that builds themselves up. And so that's why so much of the Sermon on the Mount begins with, you've heard this, but I'm here to tell you, here's the real truth of things. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you see Christ confronting all of these idols one by one. When it comes to money, for those who idolize money, Christ says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven instead. When it comes to those who are interested in their own reputation, in their own legacy, and what everybody else thinks about them, Jesus says, say all of your prayers in secret. Because forget what other people think about you. 
What matters is what God thinks of you. For money, he says, put your treasures in heaven. As for reputation, he says, pray in secret, fast in secret. Is your idol comfort or security? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. It is the Lord who is providing for you, and He will not allow comfort and security to be your God instead of Him. But He will be the God who provides for you no matter what. Is being smart and build it up and exalted in your own mind, being witty, being clever, is this an idol for you? Well, Jesus will tell you, don't build your house on that. Come and build your house on the rock, which is Him and His Word. That the one who comes and builds their life, not upon their own wisdom, but upon what real wisdom is in God, then they will be stable through all things. Is your idol strength? Christ says that He is merciful to the merciful. It is those who are merciful who will be shown mercy, and He says it is the weak who are strong in Him. We, none of us, are strong enough. Is your idol savvy? Is your idol wittiness? Is your idol charm? He says you will be judged and you'll judge other people by their fruit, not by their charms. We will judge them and we will know them by their fruit, is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Is your idol acceptance? Is the thing that drives you being accepted and being able to play along? Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you will be persecuted for my name but accepted into the kingdom by His name. And the Sermon on the Mount disabuses us of all of these idols. The difference between Christ and all other options is so stark and so beautiful. You need to learn today the wisdom of saying, Lord, there is none like You. But then you also have to say this day after day, the trick is we are still fish swimming in water. We still go back to watching the old shows that we watched or being entertained in the ways that we do or reading news and hearing policies and hearing, no, this is what's most important. And our attention and the attention of our hearts can be re-centered again and again around things that are not Christ so that we put our hopes, our dreams, spend our time on things that are not Christ. Finally, Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah, we'll start in verse 19. Jeremiah begins to grieve. In fact, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for sections like this where he hears the Word of God and he himself is broken, both because he knows he's a sinner and he's broken on behalf of Israel, which he loves so much. Verse 19 of chapter 10, Jeremiah says, "'Woe to me, because my brokenness, I am severely wounded.'" I exclaimed, this is my intense suffering, but I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. My tent cords are snapped. My sons have departed from me and are no more. I have no one to pitch my tent again or to hang up my curtains, for the shepherds are stupid. They don't seek the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered. Their whole flock is scattered. Listen, a noise. It is the coming, a great commotion from the land to the north. The cities of Judah will be made desolate, a jackal's den. You hear in his cry out to the Lord, both he himself is undone by the word of the Lord. When the word of the Lord comes to him, he recognizes he has not been better than everyone else. 
But like everyone else, he is tempted continuously to worship other gods. Moreover, he looks out over his nation Israel, and he grieves because he is a part of this nation, and the whole nation has gone astray again and again. And so judgment comes. They are undone by the word of the Lord. We likewise, when we hear the word of the Lord, it opens our eyes to who we are and what we've done. And you read Jeremiah here, you might as well be hearing about Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to Jesus and says, I know you're from God. What do I need to do? And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again. Jesus says to him, you have to start all over. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, how? He says, just like Jeremiah, woe is me because I am undone and my whole life is destroyed. He comes to Christ and Christ says to him, you must be born again. None of your accolades, nothing you've done, nothing you've lifted up about yourself counts, but you must start over. And Nicodemus asks, how, 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 having been undone by the word of the Lord, can I begin at this phase in my life and put my trust in Christ? And yet, Jesus declares to them this, the power of the Holy Spirit that can not only change him, but can make him new entirely. Jeremiah sees this as well. Verse 23, I know, Lord, that a person's way of life is not his own. No one who walks determines his own steps. This is what Jeremiah understands. I had plans. I had things set up the way they were going to be. But now I know that a person's life is not his own. And the one who walks does not determine his own steps. But the Lord does. Perhaps one of the greatest idols for us today, here we are Americans, and this thing that was meant as a good but has become an idol is personal freedom. I mean, we, we live with such a great scale of liberty in the nations now and in all of human history. God's done something great for us, and it's such a joy to have the liberty, the liberty that we do, to have the freedom that we do. But even as we enjoy this good thing, it makes for a very bad idol. This idol of personal freedom of no one should be able to tell me what I'm going to do. I need to be able to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to. The problem in life is not that I'm wrong. The problem is all the institutions out there and all these other people. The problem is culture telling me who I have to be. And the only way that I'll be really free is when I can identify as whoever I want to be, no matter what. This radical personal freedom and identity becomes a powerful idol in our world today. And it's simply foolishness. Freedom gets taken to be this idol. And the answer, if you worship this idol of personal freedom, what you're told is that this is how you're going to find joy and happiness in your life. You know, in the world, all of us people, we live simply wandering around saying, whether we know how to articulate it or not, we wander around saying, you know what I want is to be happy all the time and never sad. And this idol of personal freedom says, if you'll just be free enough to identify yourself however you want to, no matter what, and no one can tell you differently, then you'll really be happy. Then you'll really be free. Then everything will really be all right in your life. But it's utter foolishness 
And anyone who falls for this or takes on this idol for themselves will be crushed by it. Turns out life simply is difficult. And there is suffering involved in everyone's life. But there's a different sort of thing that Jeremiah goes through and he finds out that when you're called and you suffer for the sake of God, this is a better suffering. Life is difficult and there are hardships. It happens to everyone. But what we have in Christ is an endurance through all hard times and suffering. What we have in Christ is a hope beyond all of the sufferings. What we have in Christ is goodness. Jeremiah cries out and says, I know that a person's life is not their own, that a person does not order their own life, nor do we determine our own steps. Jeremiah is able to say with the rest of the witness of Scripture that a man may plan his own path, but the Lord is the one who directs his steps. And that this is a good thing. Peter says, who will harm you if you are devoted to doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Peter says, don't fear them, don't be intimidated, but in your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Be ready at any time to give an offense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it is God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. The idol in your life, dear friends, is trying to never hurt. It's trying to always be comforted. It's trying to seek after happiness and happiness alone. You're going to be disappointed if these are bad idols. Suffering is endemic to life and for all of us. What we have in Christ, though, is hope, a promise that the suffering does not go on forever, that it has a purpose and it is short-term now, that everyone is going to suffer, but not everyone is going to come to know that the Lord is the one who is guiding our steps, and that Christ is the good guide who can lead us through all of this. And what's more, Christ Himself suffered all things on our behalf on the cross. It is because we have this suffering but conquering Savior that we can make it through all things. And in Christ, what we have is one person who is truly, rightfully able to sit on the altar at the center of our lives and not crush us in our worship because He was the one who was crushed for us. And so we worship Him wholly or completely. Dear graduates, the call of the world to worship the things of the world will never stop. It will always go on. No matter where you go, no matter what you are doing, we live in the world and so we look at each other like fish going, what's water? What's idolatry? And yet our heart is constantly putting idols onto its own altar. 
we must daily turn away from them and instead turn to Christ. I tell you today, do not learn the ways of the nation, but rather in wisdom learn to say, Lord, there is none like you. There's no better phrase for clearing the altar of your heart from all false idols than to bow in prayer and say, Lord, there is none like you. Again and again, Lord, there is none like you. Forget about this idol of personal freedom that is so popular in our culture and instead follow the path that Christ has laid out for you. It will include difficulties, but it will include glory as well. And in this we have our great hope that Christ is alive and resurrected and has promised eternal life to us. In conclusion, learn to pray the prayer of Jeremiah to say, Lord, there is none like You. Or as we have leaned so heavily on the Sermon on the Mount today, perhaps you'll start to read and learn the Lord's Prayer which He gives in the Sermon on the Mount as a way of dispelling the idols in our own hearts. If the Sermon on the Mount is about confronting the idols in our lives, well, then the Lord's Prayer is most certainly the antidote for confronting those idols in our life. Perhaps take for yourself my paraphrase and see how the Lord's Prayer will help you remove idols for our hearts. Does not Jesus say that we should pray like this, Father in heaven, there is no other God like you? Is that the Lord's Prayer have us proclaim, Father God, I will be a part of your kingdom and I will rejoice to see it come in its fullness so that your will would be done both in my life and on earth just as it is in heaven? Does not the Lord's Prayer say something along these lines? That, Lord, I am coming to you for provision? for my daily bread and everything else I need, that I'm going to be learning to be more like You, God, by forgiving other people just as You've forgiven me. And only, Lord, help me to resist temptation and to resist the temptation of these idols and the way of the world so that I can live a righteous life before You. Do you not see the Lord's Prayer is about disabusing our hearts of idols and instead crying out to God, there is no other God like you. You will be holy in my life. You alone will I come to for my needs. Keep temptation and the temptation to keep going back to these other gods far away from me so that I can live a life before you and worship you. If this is the case, then let us all go together to the Lord today and say this, Lord, there is none like you. Father God, we acknowledge together today that there is none like You. Father, pray that You would direct our paths towards You. Pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to see our, our natural worldly condition and to instead no longer worship ourselves or our success or our comfort or our kids or our families but to clear out the altar of our hearts and worship you alone. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.